Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is is that you like me. My dad is my hero. Always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest knows what it's like to be in a black hole and escape. He went from being an undercover cop to a drug addict to helping drug addicts. I actually did this interview in two different parts. The first part is his story. The second part, I Googled him and found out that his sister is facing three life sentences for being a babysitter serial killer. Brock, welcome. Brock, meet Celia. Hello, Celia. Hi. How are you? Good, how are you? Good, thank you. Have you ever killed anyone? I have. Do you know the exact number of people? (laughs) I do. One. That leaves you with a lot of questions, huh? Yeah, how? I shot him with a rifle in his face. Kind of bad, huh? That's scary, right? Mm -hmm. He was under the influence. He was high and drunk, and he was fleeing from the police. This would have been his fifth DUI, so he had gone to jail for quite a long time. He knew it, so he didn't want to go back. So he, you know what suicide by cop is? Mm -hmm. That means he wanted us to kill him versus going back to prison. Yeah, so he got into his vehicle and put it in drive and tried to run us over. So then I had pretty much no decision other than to shoot and kill him. Whoa, policemen have hard jobs. Yep, and you have to make the decision very quickly. And then you have to live with it. What do you think of that? You're going to do your homework, okay? He's like, I'm done, I'm good, (laughs) thanks. Thanks for answering. (laughs) Okay. That went well. (laughs) But that's reality. I mean, that's the truth of what happens. I just recently learned even about that terminology. I never even knew. I think I heard it actually on NPR that people might shoot at the crowd to then actually be shot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he, I mean, this guy didn't, he knew his fate. He knew he was, it was not a good situation. I mean, what does that cause for you? On this occasion, so I was in two shootings. The first time I was replaced, I was about to kill this guy, um, which sounds crazy. But I mean, as an officer, you don't shoot somebody to wound them. If you are actually deploying your weapon, you're killing them. That's your goal. Because if you get to that use of force, you understand that that's what's going to happen. You don't shoot to wound people. You don't shoot to shoot them in the leg. The time before I had just been replaced, like I was in the process. This guy had just robbed the bank. He had fled from the police and he exited his car. And when he came out of the car, he had like a, a something in his hand. So he came out running like this. It wasn't a weapon, but you couldn't tell from where we were at. We were not the like the local agency. I think it was a uh, Gilbert or Chandler agency. 
So we were there first. I was working undercover. They tapped us out. So I, I was like coming out and a guy was replacing me. As soon as he replaced me and got down, the guy made the move and came out suicide by cop. But we're trained for that, if that makes sense. Like all of our training is geared towards making that decision. Like we have to, we have to be willing to do that. I mean, as officers, you know, you have to kill people. Ultimately, that's your job. And we train to that level. Now, along the way, we train to minimize the damage. We train to talk our way out of it and use minimal amount of force possible. But on the occasion that I shot and killed the guy, he was in a pursuit. He got out of his vehicle. We now listen to this. This is a force continuum, right? We use verbal commands. Hey, come here, Wade. Get out of the car. Put your hands up and refused. We tasered him twice, shot him with the beanbag twice and hit him in both times in the ribs. And he just like minimal effect. We pepper sprayed him, canine bit him twice in the leg. Our SWAT team approached him and tried to grab him. So all of that, he, it didn't didn't affect him. He didn't say, okay, guys, like if I'm tased, I'm like, okay, okay, I'm ready. But we went through the whole use of force continuum and he didn't give up until he used deadly force against us by getting his vehicle, put it in drive and coming at us. And so when that happens, you're, you're forced, you're first to make a decision. So I shot him through his windshield and my shot hit him right in the chin and then my follow-up shot got him right under the collarbone. Now you ask like what the effect has on us that night. I, I knew that I made the right decision and I can live with it. Right. We went through the use of force. My job was to minimize the damage. Had he escaped, he would have, I mean, he was going to run through me and my vehicle, which were officers behind it. So my job was to shoot and kill him. That was my job. But it wasn't until two months later where I went to the deposition. And now imagine this, there's a small table, me and my attorney. And then on the other side was his mom, his dad, his sister, who was a dispatcher for Phoenix PD, and then their attorney. Oh. And so after the deposition, they're like, okay, mom's like, can I ask you a question? And my attorney's like, you don't have to answer this. Don't, don't answer. But I'm thinking, hey, listen, I'm a dad. If I can help mom out at all, I'm willing to do it. So the question came from mom was, Officer Bevel, if you had the chance to do it again, would you kill my son? Now, I don't know about you, Rena, but that's a hard, that's hard to answer, right? You say it wrong, then you're, you're hated for life. And I, I didn't answer it lightly, but I said, if I was to do it again, my training tells me that I have to do it. I would have to shoot and kill him. And he put us in that situation that forced us to react with deadly force. And that's how we're trained. And that's how we perform. Yeah. I mean, that stuff, does it wake you up at night? Does it keep you up? Do all those smells come back? And when you see blood, does it take you there? Absolutely. It doesn't go away. And time is not a healer. Everybody's like, oh, time heals everything. It does not. You know, maybe, maybe in love or certain circumstances like that, but not in violence. Wow. Right. So I just gave, <laughs> I just gave you a plateful. So you do with that what you want. All right. There was my therapy session. <laughs> you know, I took some notes of other hard words that you've had to hear. The first thing I wrote down was no longer fit for duty. Yeah, that was for me, probably one of the hardest just because I wasn't ready for it. Does that make sense? I was living my best life in, in my mind. I was the happiest I was ever. I was cool. You know, I go to parties and an event and people wanted to talk to me. They're like, this dude is cool. He's an undercover cop. Go talk to him. I had a long beard, 11 inches long. I mean, I, I it, it looked good. You know what I mean? I had earrings and, and the hair. And I was living the life that I was wanted because I was covering up a lot of trauma. By living this guy, I didn't have to live that other guy. 
And so for me, that was like, yes, that was peace. That was my Zen. If that really can resonate with you and, and the listeners. And, and that was calming for me. That was like the perfect storm. And then when they said, you're no longer fit for duty. And I'm thinking, my mind, I went, wait, hold on, hold on. There's dudes on my department that are 400 pounds. There's women on the department. You know, this is where your mind goes. There's women in the department that have never been punched in the face. And if they had, would they be able to handle it? I just have a leg injury. And so in my mind, I'm making all these justifications and this rational, I was rationalizing whether I was fit. But really, if I was pushed, like trying to catch myself down a flight of stairs, if I needed to get to a partner, could I get there? And then I had to realize, you know what? Maybe you're not fit for duty. At the time, physically, I think I was, mentally, I wasn't. And usually people are like, wait a minute, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But I was like, I was struggling mentally a lot with a lot of things in my life. Let's talk about that. I want to know about what you were covering up. I want to know about the trauma. Tell me about the trauma. Where did the trauma start? What's funny is I don't, we don't talk about this a lot. We, we don't get to, when I was a little kid, I had a brother that was amazing. His name is Daryl, two years older than me. I think the trauma started when, when dad spent a lot of time with him. So it was Daryl, it was Amy Daryl Brock. Amy, my oldest sister is in prison today, three life terms. That's some trauma right there. But my brother and I were super close, two years apart. He was super athletic. I had to work to be athletic. I was just violent, if that makes sense. So I was really good in certain sports, like football was really good, but he was, he was excellent at everything. And I remember when he was a sophomore in high school, he, my dad was coaching him his freshman year at a, at Swirl High School. My dad got the job at a rival school. So my dad had to pick my brother up and move him, which forced my dad out of our home to live far north from us. And he took my brother. And I remember how mad I was. I was like, wait a minute, why can't I come? Why can't I go live with you guys? And my dad and him and my dad got an apartment together, right? When I was in eighth grade, I remember I was so mad. And I know that sounds crazy, but it just, I felt a little bit abandoned maybe. I felt a little bit like, what the hell is my dad doing? Why, why would he make that decision and pull himself out of the home? There was some abuse. There was some drug use early on I was into. And so, and, you know, marijuana, just, just kind of checking out with the neighbors um, and, and stuff like that. So that kind of trauma, that, that wasn't what I was going with most. I think my biggest trauma was when I was eight years old and I experienced experienced pornography for the first time. If I'm going in like too many directions, let me know. But but you asked a question and, and I think it's important to where like if you fast forward in my life today, you'll understand like who I've become. At eight years old, I remember I was with my brother. We had to go throw some trash out. We had these huge cans out in our alleyway. When we flipped the can open, there was this huge box of pornography magazines. I took one. My brother took one. We opened it up. And of course, I, I opened it up to the page that I can never forget. I'm looking at it and Daryl's looking at, we're looking, making eye contact. We had never seen pornography. This was a Playboy and there was probably a hundred of them in this thing. I wish I'd have kept all those because I would probably be rich today because there was like, this dude had a collection. You know what I mean? But it's interesting. That was the first time that I can remember that I had this hook. I was hooked. Like, you know, we talk about an addiction, this chemical hook where your body changes. I actually felt that I needed to sneak back out there because I remember my brother's like, hey, he hit it out of my hand. We don't we don't look at that stuff. And I'm like, OK, we don't look at this. I mean, we put it back in when we shut the lid and on the way back into the house, I got into the house and I'm like, all I can think about is how am I going to get back out there 
to look at this stuff. Like I, I seriously, in my brain, I'm a little kid. I'm eight years old. I'm like, okay, I can just, I got to beat the trash man. I got to get that. And I got to put it in a bag and I got to be able to secure it. So if it rains, it doesn't get like, really who does this at eight that had never seen it. So my brain was already like in full swing, kicking in gear. And I did, I snuck out there, grabbed two of them, hit them. And then for the next while I'm sitting there looking at the same, same magazine, same stories, and I'm still getting the same arousal out of it. And at that point in time, I'm like, I, I mean, I didn't know I was addicted, but I was 100% addicted to pornography at that time. And then of course that caused you start using the masturbation. You start going through this vicious cycle downhill. And my worth was wrapped up in, into that because I was in a very structured religious home and there were benchmarks in our religion. So at 12 or eight, you're baptized at 12, you receive the priesthood at, and then like 16, 17, you get the next priesthood. And then you get on a chance to go on a mission. And each time you have this benchmark where you got to meet with the leader, right? Your pastor, whatever you want to call it. And each time I had to lie. And so as a little kid, I'm lying and lying and lying about, and I knew I had this pornography thing. I knew I was masturbating. I knew that it made me feel like I just felt bad about it because I, I didn't feel like it was right. You know, a lot of people are like, hey, masturbation's fine. But in my brain, it wasn't right. And I knew it wasn't right. So I never, ever felt worthy. And so as a little kid, imagine like, you're a piece of crap, man. You're you're nothing. You're a dirt bag. And I just had all these like negative vibes in my head. And so I never felt worthy at all as a little kid. So that's where I think a lot of my trauma stemmed from that I wasn't good enough. And I look at my brother and he's this perfect today. He is still the perfect person. I know wow. it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Does I know he know it how much good. you think that of him? You know, we've never had a no. I mean, we're friends. We're we're good and stuff. But I don't think I've ever shared that with him. He knows that I look up to him. He knows that I I think he's an ama he's amazing human being. He really is. What's funny is we always laugh because he was always the perfect, and I was the one that was not perfect. And we giggle about it because he's like, "Hey, if Dad told me not to touch the stove, I was cool with it. You had to go lay on top of it." Right. We were just we were just those kind of guys, like totally opposite. So but that's where my trauma stem. Did your parents split up when your dad moved? Nope. No, they stayed together. Yeah. And he lived only there for six, seven, eight months to get residency. And then he came back. And I just remember being really upset about that. Okay. So speaking of siblings, I did Google your sister and I just wanted to catch up the audience on what happened for context. Amy Lynn Scott, babysitter, was arrested in Georgia and extradited to Arizona and indicted there by a grand jury in 2004 on charges of murdering three children who had died in her care in 1989. Shauna Cunnington, two months, of Phoenix. Zachary Mann, eight months, of Scottsdale. And Jordan Whitmer, four months, of Tempe. She was found guilty March 7th, 2007. The three infants died within nine months of each other. Scott met all of the baby's parents at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Scottsdale. New autopsies had been conducted in 2002. The medical examiner who found that Jordan likely died of a compressional asphyxia or being suffocated by a hard squeezed. Zachary's death was suggestive of suffocation and suffocation couldn't be ruled out in Shauna's death. Amy Lynn Scott told the mother of one of the three babies she is accused of killing 
that she saw herself as an instrument to guide people to the next life, a police report says. A Tempe police report released that the babysitter doesn't remember what happened when the children died and has suffered through some really bad mental times. But after Rachel Whitmer's baby, the last of the three died, Whitmer remembered Scott telling her in 89, I had seen a lot of death in my life and that I feel that I am an instrument to help people's spirits go to the next life. Whitmer recounted the quote to the police in 2003 after they began investigating the case again. Scott, 37, is charged with three counts of first-degree murder in the case of two Valley boys and a girl whose deaths were initially attributed to sudden infant death syndrome. Amy Lynn Scott grew up Amy Bevel in Scottsdale, the oldest of eight children, She was treated at a mental health clinic for several days as a teenager when she was suicidal. She moved to Washington after graduating from high school and met Seth Scott. They were eager to start a family and married in 1988. In 88, two months before Shauna died, Scott miscarried twins. She stayed in bed crying a lot because they wanted children so badly, he said. They eventually would have four children before the couple's marriage dissolved in 1993. Amy Scott took their fourth child to the hospital when she was four days old because she had seizures and stopped breathing, according to the hospital records. And interviews cited in the police report, the girl stayed for 10 days, but doctors found no cause for the illness. The child now suffers developmental problems. This is just a little of the backstory of what I found out about Brock's sister. And today, Brock is going to be brave enough to talk about this really for the first time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to a, throw a disclaimer out there. I uh, have no problem talking about my sister. I don't talk about her a lot. So let me tell you this. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a deep dive for one second. I had a, a lady. It was only about a month ago. She hits me up and she says, I want to come on your podcast and talk about grief and recovery. Yeah. I want your listeners to hear this. So let's go with that. I heard her talk to me about that. All I thought about was no. And what a weird topic. That was my thought. Good, wrong, or different. That was my thought. And so I reached out to her anyways and just kind of hit her up and talked to her briefly. And I said, you know, I want to know more. And so we had a a brief conversation. And in my mind, when I think about grief, I think about death. My mom and dad are getting elderly. They're going to pass away. I'm going to have to grieve their death. She's like, that's not all. You're divorced, right? I said, yeah, twice divorced. And she goes, did you grieve those marriages? Did you grieve that divorce? And I'm like, no. And then I started thinking, and this is where it kind of, and, and, and I'm, and I appreciate you bringing this up because this is kind of a topic that I was going to talk about. My sister was arrested and I think it was like back in, it was 2003 grand jury was like 2004. So she wasn't in my life. She was in Georgia. I was in Arizona. So she was arrested, tried, convicted, and we'll go back and I mean, I can explain that. But during the podcast, she asked me, are there things in your life that you haven't grieved? And I'm like, man, one of the things that we have never talked about as a family ever, it's almost a taboo subject, maybe because it's grief, but I'm like, I've never grieved her. That was a major loss. And as a family, we just went on. We never talked about it. It was almost very like, don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. We can't talk about Amy. So anytime we would try, even I noticed my, when my kids would talk to me about it, I would give them just really basic information from what, you know, that you can Google. I mean, this isn't a secret. This isn't like a family secret. It's everywhere on Google and, and people know about it and people that know our family know that it was thing that happened. And so I was very appreciative over the last month to have this podcast and talk to this lady about grief. And I'm like, wow, maybe the reason that my family doesn't want to talk about it is we've never grieved. 
And so this is like, maybe this is a way for me to talk about it and grieve and share with you what, what questions you have. So that's kind of like an insight into my brain and into my family's brain. And they're always like, well, why would you talk about Amy? Well, she's still my sister. I still love her. We still had some times when we were kids that we can look back on it and grab onto, but it was, it was a tumultuous growing up with her. And really? so, so I'm 50, she is four years older than me. So she's 54. So think about back in the day in the nineties and the eighties, when you had mental illness, nobody talked about it. And, and so much so that it was a family secret. Only those privy to your family knew that you had some dynamics within your family that were secretive. Totally. But I think my family and we are still stuck in that taboo where we don't talk about it. So uh, to be honest with you, you were pretty much the first person that has even talked to me about her. Whoa. I'm leaving the door open for you to fire away, but I wanted to have that disclaimer in there. So you and the guests were aware of where I'm at. Thank you so much for being willing to even have this conversation because I know not even all of my family members want me talking about them on the show. Yeah, it's real. I listened to another like true crime podcast that covered her story. I mean, have you listened to those? And what does it feel like hearing other people talk about her or covering the story or telling it in their own interpretation? To be honest with you, I've seen them, but I have never listened to them. When it was going on, it was so, it was a difficult time because think about this. I'm a police officer. Scottsdale, Tempe, Mesa are within miles of each other. The murders happened within Scottsdale and Tempe. So because they were in different jurisdictions, the police officers weren't connecting the crime. The, I'm going to call them crimes because that's what they say in, in the paper. They weren't connecting the crimes because of the proximity of the area, but with they were outside of the city limits. Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. And okay. she wasn't convicted for 18 years. Right. So to let you to understand like a time frame, the first baby died in February of 89. The second one was September of 89. And the third one was October 25th of 89. So within 1989, there were three deaths, but they were in different jurisdictions. And originally they thought that it was sudden infant death syndrome. I don't really hear that used much anymore. It's when a baby just dies and the medical examiner or and the doctors cannot attach a cause of death to that baby. So it was sudden infant death syndrome. That's what it was. That was SIDS. And it was a very common thing in the 80s and 90s. I don't hear it now so much, but it was big then. And also from what I read, it was like, they thought it was that, you know, it happened in different districts. They didn't have enough forensic evidence to be able to really pursue it. No. And actually to be, and I, I believe this is all public record, is the bodies I believe were exhumed before trial. So we're talking years. So because there was an investigation done by the county attorney in 1989, they were there were some investigations done because they used that information in the trial. But again, they didn't have enough evidence. But at that time, they didn't have the evidence and they yeah, they ruled it a SIDS death. Wow. Yes. 
in 2002 when it started coming back up that there was some asphyxiation rulings and was suggested that there was some suffocation going on, but they, it couldn't be ruled. And so that's why they, that's basically why they ruled it that way. Okay. Did yeah. you talk to her like during any of that investigation? So I was a police officer in, and this is where I, I, I still have some anger about the whole case. Now understand this. I was a police officer sworn in uniform in Mesa. My sister was living in Georgia. So she had moved. And she had four kids at this time. The police department from, I believe, Scottsdale or Tempe are working cold cases. They have now put together these three deaths, okay? Because one of the ladies married a detective, okay? So after her case, after the deaths, Amy's moved and the detective's talking to his wife and he hears about this case. So he, on his own, starts opening cases and talking to other agencies and finds three deaths. And so he's like, there's no way there's, it's just impossible. Same suspect, three deaths. So you could, I mean, as humans, we can understand that there's something we, we have to look into this, but they couldn't put it together because back in the day, the computer systems didn't align. They show up on her doorstep in Georgia. My family, my mom and dad are called by my sister. And she basically, from what I remember is they tell her to talk to the police. Wow. They don't call the guy who is actually working as an officer. If you have, okay, I'm, I'm talking to all your listeners, 12, 14 years later, and you have a that shows up at your door and says, I want to talk to you about an incident that happened with these babies. Will you talk to me? No, not because you're guilty or not guilty, but in 12 and 14, you don't have a recollection and you don't want to say something that could convict you later. And that's what happened. She made some utterances. She made some statements in this that we're pretty, we're pretty strong in court. But the question you asked me was, did I talk to her? She was charged. There was a bond and our family met together and we, a member, a friend actually posted her bond, which was a very big bond. We had a family conversation and at no time has she said she's done it or has not done it. And I believe, I know for me, and, I, and I've spoken to some other siblings, that that's kind of a difficult situation. Because as a family, we need to know this stuff. Like we think we deserve to know this stuff. She refuses to answer it. And, and so, I mean, even today, when the family members, I mean, we just don't talk about it. The last family reunion our family had together was in jail sitting around a table with her there. That was the last family reunion we've had. Whoa. And we don't talk about it. Now, probably not the place to talk about it in the prison system, but still, it's like, man, it's it's hard. That's amazing that you guys went and saw her there, though. It was a family function. I mean, I have no, I mean, it was difficult. All of you, like all eight siblings went? All eight siblings and mom and dad. What do you guys talk about? We actually got off our chest some frustrations with one another. Yeah. I mean, we talked and and it felt like a good meeting. We talked about funny things that happened as a kid, but we don't ever talk about the mental illness. We never talk about her anger, her outbursts. We, I mean, we just don't talk about that stuff. And I wish we did. I mean, I feel like I told you last time we we're only as sick as our secrets. 
And if we don't talk about things, this cycle will end up repeating itself over and over and over. So if we don't break the cycle, it will continue to affect our children and their children and so forth. And it will keep growing until somebody breaks it. And in my mind, I'm breaking it in my family. Like my cycle, we're breaking that in my home. So I'm I'm trying not to pass that on to my kids. We're talking about, I mean, it's, but it's hard. Okay. This may come off wrong and I hope I don't offend you, but like you've killed somebody too. I have. Can you relate to her at all about doing that? No, I can't because mine was done in the line of duty. Mine was done. I was trained for that moment. In my mind, it was going to happen. And if it happened, if now, now, if I had done something wrong, if I had escalated the use of force when I didn't need to, if I would have, it was a shoot or a no shoot, shoot scenario, I would have. But I think mine was so clean and I was cleared afterwards so quickly that really there was no relation because with these three deaths, there were at different times. Do you try to figure out like what was going on in her mind? Well, I, no, I don't because I know what was going on with her. The family dynamic is she's the oldest and there's my brother and then myself. And then my young, my next brother's three years young. It was really Amy, Daryl, Brock together. We were the first of the family. My sister displayed and showed bouts of anger. And she, okay, this is how I explain it. She was either the nicest woman in the world, giving you anything she could give you, or she wanted to kill you. It was either very here up top or very low, low, low. And so we were able to experience that in our home. We saw the outburst. We understood how quick she could get mad and then come back and say, I am so sorry for lashing out. Like there were times where it was scary. It was really scary. And remember times on Christmas, she'd be running down the middle of the street in, in no shoes, screaming at the top of her lungs, crying. So we saw this and we saw the outburst, bam. And these, and that's what the police, the investigation displayed and proved. Now that's in the court of law. That's not what my, her brother feels. That's what the conclusion was, is there was a, a moment of frustration. The baby was either suffocating, shaken and had passed away. So also, that, so to say that didn't, didn't come as a surprise. Maybe I'll put it that way because we saw that coming. Not, we didn't see the death coming, but we saw those bouts of anger. Do you think it could have been stopped? I mean, it's always easy to look back and say, oh, if, if if we have the attention and medical attention and knowledge today as back then, but we were just trying to, we were trying to live life. We were trying to cope and get through it. Mom and dad were just, they, this was their first child. Imagine that. I mean, imagine not that, but imagine her being your first child and, and having this. It was, it was hard. It's hard on my parents. When it is your first child, you don't know what to expect. Like you don't know how to navigate. No. And you're like, you want to be a good parent. And how do you admit that you have a daughter that's has some mental illness, severe mental illness? Did they try to get her help? I, I want to, I, I want to say they did. There were times where I don't know if medication was ever optional. Like I, I remember I was diagnosed with dyslexia early on. And I remember going and that was a big thing for my parents with no medication. He's ADHD, but we don't want to change him. So we're not doing any medication. So I would believe that they carried the same thought with her even breeds into us now. I mean, I have a daughter that struggles with it. And I remember the first time when we were told by the doctors, hey, she needs to be medicated. We were like, ah, 
do we really want to do this? So, so hard as a parent. Like, I feel for them, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Super difficult. Oh, man. And too, like, I read that she went through miscarriage, which your hormones are hell during that. I mean, I myself have experienced a couple. Did you talk to her through that time at all? No, we really didn't. We really didn't. We didn't. I was already out of the house. I served a mission right when I got, you know, I came home and her, she was married and I just, we didn't, we weren't that type of relationship either. So crazy. Cause like you were saying, it was like the three of you guys, like you were close. I mean, I have three that are close. Like I had three and four years, you know, and then I waited eight years and had another one. So yeah. Ugh. Like, it's, it's crazy to think of like your older sister like that. Like I have a daughter with a younger brother, you know, and I'm like, oh, when you grow up that, that it just, it has to, it has to affect you. You know, when it affected me the most was when she asked me to be a character witness for her. Not that I didn't want to and, and love her because I, I mean, absolutely do. She's my sister, no matter what. But think about being a sworn officer. Your sister says, hey, as my brother, will you testify? Will you, will you share your, your personal thoughts about me? First of all, they weren't always good. Okay, let's be honest. There were some difficult times, but I knew that she needed it. So of course, yeah, I'm her brother, no matter what. Even if I I would have lost my profession over it, I would have done it because it was the right thing to do. But going back to the department was probably one of the hardest things that I've ever, and I I don't tell people this at all. I like, you are the first one I've shared this with. And, and that's, that's, that's truth because it's, it's something that I'm, I mean, maybe I'm not proud of it. Maybe it's, I I have some post-traumatic stress from it, but here I am on the stand. And when I got back to the agency, when I got back to my department, everybody knew, I remember they were upset. Like the guys weren't cool with it. They weren't like, oh, yeah, hey, man, I heard you. I mean, how do you explain that? I just was on the stand as a character witness for a woman who was being convicted of death, of killing, not only killing, but three babies. And that was the hard thing. And so going back to the department, man, was was your friends with a child killer, a murderer, and you're, you're carrying a badge. And so that those were hard comments. And, and who do you share that with? I mean, you go to the guy and say, hey, don't talk to me like that. That's mean. I mean, you just you just take it. I don't know how the hell you took that. They were right. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, they didn't say anything that was wrong. That was incorrect. Maybe they didn't say anything incorrect. It was truth. I mean, she had been convicted. The court of law, they went through the court of law. They found her guilty. And so their comments weren't lies. They weren't fabricated. Were they mean? Yeah. Were they, were they meant to hurt and, and provoke and anger me? Yes. But they weren't wrong. When you get talked to by a supervisor about it, that's a hard. You almost feel like your integrity is on the line. Right. And they see you separate from that. Right. Damn. I give it to you for walking back in. That is so brave. I don't really know if I had a choice. I, I don't, I didn't see it at the time as bravery. I do think it's bravery now talking about it with you because like, I don't, that's, a, that's a hard, those are hard conversations. And I think that's why we're sick is our secrets. Cause we, there's certain things that we're okay talking about, but there's those secrets that we want to take to the grave that are where we need to heal though. That's the healing point. If that makes sense. And I just gave your, your listeners a very important element life. People will talk 
only so far, like their deepest, darkest secrets are willing. Okay, here you go. But there's always something there that we want to take to the grave that we don't want to share. That is the one thing that is keeping us sick. Wow. If you are really willing to share it all, I don't think that there's many people who do. That really makes you special for real. Special or a little bit crazy. But, but I saw that I, I mean, I needed to heal. I mean, I, my act of addiction. So it went from that to shooting and killing a guy to being run over to being let go to, to live in a new life, not being a cop. My identity was tested medication freely flowing. I never healed from all that. I didn't even heal from my sister being put in, you know what I mean? Like all these things compounding and the medication, the addiction seemed to calm all that noise. Though we didn't talk about, you know what I mean? Though we didn't talk about amongst our family, it was always running through my head. It has to be running through theirs too. Yeah, it, it, it has to. And I, and I hope, I hope maybe hearing this, maybe they'll talk because I want to talk to my family about it. I do. I want to have this conversation, whether it comes out okay or not. I think it, there's healing in communication. What do you think people are afraid to ask you? Do I think she did it because I'm her brother? And because of just what I believe in my mind, do I feel like she murdered those kids as babysitters when you go to work and you leave your kids and you pay them a a minimal fee? This was back in the 80s and 89. And so it was a long time ago. What happened was Amy was living in, I don't know if it was Scottsdale or Tempe at the time, and a baby died in her care. She called the police. The police came, investigated, ruled it as a SIDS death. The next time she was in Tempe, she was at a park with my brother and the baby died. I, I'm trying to recollect all of them. The baby died in her arms. The baby had also been in the hospital a few days earlier for pneumonia. And so when they did that investigation, they ruled that as a SIDS. So one was in Scottsdale, one was in Tempe. And then the next one, it was Jordan Whitmer was the name of the baby. And I believe the baby was like two months old. That's my recollection, two to four. What happened on this case was a lot different than the other cases. And Amy even talked about that she knew the baby had died in her care. But when the mom showed up, she wrapped the baby in a blanket and put it in in the car seat, said, hey, the baby's sleeping, hasn't been feeling good today, let him sleep. So the mom takes the baby, puts it in the car, takes the baby home, baby's still asleep. It goes to wake the baby up like, whoa, this is this is a long time goes to wake the baby up and the baby's dead. So three different babies, three different communities, three different times, all in 89, all ruled as a SIDS death. The only reason it opened up was because of this cold case detective that worked for the Scottsdale Police Department or Tempe Police, one of them. And he did a thorough investigation and found out there was three. So the important part for your listeners to understand is when she went to trial, they clumped all three murders in one trial. All three moms were in the same room. All three families were in the same room and they called it the rule of three. It was a brand new case law. And they're basically the rule was under the lightning strike that a lightning strike is not going to be at the same place for three times. There was actually belief that there was some violation of the law because they clumped them individually. Had she, or as one, had she been each case separate and where this mom in this case individually went first and then this case and then this case, 
it would be a, probably a different outcome. But because they were clumped together, three babies, three moms in the same room, they found her guilty of all three murders. And that's what they called. So she got three consecutive life term sentences of 75 years apiece. That's kind of a really important part of the case that people can understand. So the answer to your question, the, the very long way around is, I think the question people are afraid to ask me and the family, because even we're afraid to ask her or each other was, do we think she did it? There's your answer. You've never asked. I, I've never, I've never had a chance to sit down with her individually and ask her. Well, do I support her today? Yes. Do I love her? Yes. Do I think something happened? Yes. That's just true. I, I believe because, because in moments of, I mean, you understand it as a mom, there are moments when we just get upset. And sometimes we have that baby in our arm, like, listen, if you were my kid, I would choke you out. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we just get frustrated. We get tired. We get sleep deprived or whatever it is. There, there's always some frustration, but I think because of her illness and I'm not blaming it on mental illness. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying she deserves to be nothing like that. All I'm saying is because of what I saw, I lived it. I witnessed it. I believe that she was involved in at least one of the deaths. That so, is so hard. Yeah, it's hard, but we make mistakes. You know, we, we all make, and, and people are like, well, that's a big mistake. Well, it is. And she's in prison for it. And she's spending the rest of her life there because of those decisions. So, I mean, if you want to call that justice or mercy or grace, whatever, I mean, that's the end result. Do you yeah. feel like your sister has been able to change? Oh man, I think she's in the most difficult situation. Anybody. I, I think prison just creates more criminals. I don't believe there's there's great education in the prison system. I do know that she has a relationship with God. I, I do know that. And I pray for her that he strengthens her. I mean, imagine living the rest of your life in jail. And she has four beautiful kids, just four daughters. And they're they're out being married and having kids. She has grandkids that she will only see in prison. That's That's hard. I feel for them too, to be honest. Oh, absolutely. They were there when she was removed from the home and arrested. They were all old enough to remember it. Have you been able to talk to them about it at all? That's just, a. am I'm, I'm telling you, that's just a, a topic we don't talk about. I talked to a sister-in-law about it. And we just, I mean, we bounce ideas off, you know, we've thought about, we've thought about reaching out and seeing if we could help her. I mean, just, I mean, all that kind of stuff, but no, I don't believe she has any more. What do they call those where you can petition the court? I don't remember what it's called, but yeah. Everybody's like, I know that word, but I can't remember it where you can throw your case out. I think she's past that time of being able to do that. So yeah. what would you ask her? Oh man, that's a good question. And then again, I don't know if I talked about the case with her. I don't know if that's something off limits or not, you know, with her, I, I, I would probably, I do want to know. I do want to know if I could sit down with her, she would talk to me because we do have, a, we did have a great relationship even growing up great relationship as, as brothers and the sister does, if that makes any sense. It's been a long time, you know, and she's, she's, she's not healthy. She's not healthy. So I don't, I don't know. I just, I don't have that answer. I'm going to think about that. What I would ask her. Cause I, I don't want to just spew something out because it's a tender topic. Also, I would, like, I wonder what your parents would ask her. Like, would there be some questions that they would love to know that could give them some relief? that could help them grieve. Like that if they got the answers 
to those questions that it would help them live more peacefully. When they lived in Scottsdale, they've moved since moved up north a couple of years ago. They went every week and visited her every week, nonstop. They did it for years. So I think their questions are answered. I think they are. I think they sleep well. They live in peace. I don't believe that they're living with that torment that they had involvement in it. I think they understand that that Amy had some mental illness that went untreated. It wasn't something that they could change today. They're living their lives today, giving back to people. They work in a recovery program and they teach every single day. I'm telling you, yeah, these are just, I mean, they're good people and they work hard. And so that's their thing. That's where they put their time into, into men and women in treatment. Wow. Could you collaborate with them in some kind of way? I mean, you guys are doing similar work. That's so well, interesting. So I owned the business originally, and then I transferred it in, after six years, and they stayed and are continuing to work there. That is so interesting. And I know, too, I read that she didn't testify. She did not. And the last thing that she said was that she loved her family. That was written about. Yeah. And I believe that. I, I do. I, I believe that was her, that was her one saving grace that she loved uh, as much as she struggled. She loved us. We do know that. But the thing is, it's hard because I feel like I should do more. Does that make sense? I wish, I mean, I don't keep in contact with her like I should. I don't. It's almost like out of sight, out of mind. It's when I go there, it was hard. And I'm, I was almost like, I'm not doing this again. I'm not coming back here. I took my all my, my five kids to prison with me one time when they were young. It was a terrible experience. The canines were like sniffing them. And, it, and my daughter had an, an underbra wire on and they threw a fit about it. And it was just, I mean, she was young, probably 12, 13. And so it was just, it was hard. And so I have just personal feelings about it, but I'm, she's still my sister. I need to do better. And I have some things that I'm talking to her about, you know, that I, I need to get over as a ch when we were as a child. That was kind of where we left it. So um, it was good for me. Do you remember any of the good times that you had? Like We did have some good times. She was that sister would always take us to stores and buy us candy when she was old because she was old enough to drive. So we got in a major car accident. I remember her only thing was reaching over and grabbing me and protecting me from from going through. Yeah, I mean, so she was very thoughtful. My parents brought, bought her a car and put four brand new tires on it. The car was probably worth 2,500 bucks. And we come home a couple of days later and Amy is selling the car for $25. And she is like, dad, I got a smoking deal. $25 these guys paid for this car. And my dad was so mad, but it was done. Yeah. So things like that, we kind of like giggle about. She wrecked. We were in a, in a gremlin. I don't remember if you know gremlin, we were flying down an alley and she wrecked and it just, it was always chaos. It was, it was just ridiculous chaos. Either she was buying us candy or running around trying to choke us out. What about her first relationship that didn't work out? Ooh. Cause I think what there was, was definitely the some trauma there. There was serious trauma. There was some physical abuse there. With that, that's not a secret. That was pretty known. That was what caused a divorce. There's a lot I could tell you about the relationships, but it's like, it, it was always chaos, always something crazy going on. Yeah. God, that must've been hard for you as a brother too, to like yeah. see that happen to your sister. Yeah. I, luckily with him, I wasn't home. I was on a mission already. So I was out of the country. 
when I came home and I found out about it, that's where it became hard. And then seeing him picking the kids up, it was always like, do I just go choke him out or do I just let him pick the kids up? And that's another thing we don't talk about. And so it's all, it was always really awkward. And then Amy had three kids, but, and one of them was when they were separated or divorced and he'd already moved on, but now she gets pregnant and has this kid and they have to go for years and years without telling the ex, the, the girlfriend that he has a, she has a kid. So she could never go with the dad. It was like, it was freaking crazy. It was chaos. It was like, what the hell? So those kind of things like, are hard. And we look at those times in our lives and we're like, no wonder we struggle as adults. If we don't break those cycles, we repeat what we've seen. That's why I really commend you for talking about it because yeah, if you don't talk about it, then some of these things can repeat. Yeah. Whoa. Did anybody in the community say anything to your family or anybody that you work with? Like, did anybody say anything that's like hurt you? No, because when I was a police, I was a police officer. So I was kind of away from all my childhood friends. I grew up in Scottsdale, worked in the town next, lived in the town next to it in Mesa. All my friends were new people. Did we hear scuttlebutt? Did one of the siblings have something said to him? I'm sure. But people were pretty cautious about how they talked around us. And at the same time of all this was going on, my brother was moving up in the ranks. He was in the NFL. And so it was almost like, well, I I remember, do we, we were, I mean, this sounds, this sounds really crazy that I'm telling you this, but we were almost happy that her name, when it was written in the papers was not Bevel. It was Scott. They used her maiden name. They used her married name. Amy Scott. But I remember the family going, oh, thank goodness that saves Daryl. That saves our older brother because now he's in the NFL. He doesn't have to explain what's going on. He was worried about going for jobs. Are they going to bring this? And and really those are minute details, but they were details that we were worried about, right? Does that, it seems crazy now to talk about it and vocalize that, but that was real truth. You know what though? Everybody has dirt. Yeah, but not everybody's is on the front page news. That's true. I mean, you see these articles today where she's now deemed as the babysitter killer or something like that. I can't even remember now, but it's kind of, uh, yeah, Arizona babysitter serial killer. You're like, holy cow, that's... um. That's my sister, you know, so you, re- I mean, that's not, that's just, if you Google her name, it's not something you have to, it takes very long to find all the pictures of her. Family can uh, really be a doozy. <laughs> mm, man, I'm, I'm 50 and, and family's the biggest hurdle struggle I have today. Still. What would you say that you've learned from all of this? You can change that. You can break your cycles. It's not mine to push onto my kids. It was mine at the time and I had to learn how to deal with it and identify it and cope with it. But I don't have to pass. It doesn't have to be generational, if that makes sense. Like my addiction was my addiction. It doesn't have to be pushed into my kids. But if we're secret about it, we don't talk about it. Our kids are smart enough to see what's going on. They know way before we talk to them. And so that for me, probably most proudest that I've been open about it, that I've talked to them about it, that I, they know dad's had problems with it. My son just wrote a paper about it. Yeah, he, he's trying to get into college. So he had to write some papers and he talked about the addiction that his dad had and, and the divorce that it caused and the friction and, and how dad's doing today. Like he took it. And so like, 
I'm proud of those things and happy that, that we went through it, but uh, it sucked getting here. That is tremendous that he was able to do that. Yeah, I, and he was I young. envy that in some ways that he felt like that that was something so important to him that he wanted to write about that. Yeah. My other daughter was in college last year and she did a big old paper on fentanyl and called me and said, Hey dad, let's talk about this. Can you help me with it? So it's an open conversation, but think about it. Had I not been open, I missed those opportunities. And then if they struggle with it, dad hit it. Dad, dad didn't talk about it. So I'm not going to talk about it. The hardest thing is like, you know, when kids throw stuff in your face and they're like, you did it. Yeah. Do you worry about them struggling with any of this stuff? Sure. I know, I know my oldest daughter does. My daughter struggles with it. She knows I love her, but she was in it. She was right in the middle of it and she still struggles. She still lives with mom and it's constant still. They see her mom hurt, even though it's been years and it's dad's fault. And that's what they attach it to. And so I just have to be constant on being the best person I can be today. I commend you for that. And honestly, I think that you're such a good communicator. So like the more communicating you do too, like I do feel like that is healing. Absolutely. I mean, this has to be healing in some kind of way. Yeah, it feels good. Like there's, I told you things that I have not talked about. Yeah. Like my family has no clue, no clue, zero clue about how it affected me in the department. Like I've never talked about it. It was just something I'm the old, I'm the brother. I'm going to, I'm going to eat this. I'm going to keep it. And I'm never going to share it. This is the first time I've talked about it. I mean, people with my family would hear it now and be like, what? And they may get upset about it, but so we got to talk about it. Someone's got to talk about it. I'm sure with the people that you have worked with and helped that they wish they could share like this. Yeah. And the thing about me is I don't care. I shouldn't, I, that sounds bad, but I don't, I don't really, if my family comes back and they're like, you're, I can't believe you did that. I'm okay with that. I am because, because I'm okay with who I am. I'm okay with the story. It's my story. I can't change my story. And I want to talk about it. And I think people can learn from our stories. If we don't talk, if we don't share it, these stories just why did we go through it then? You know, why did we go through it? Like we have a message that we can share with other people. We can do hard things. We can get through difficult times. But if we don't talk about how we did it and how we came through it, then it's invalid. It was useless. I say that to myself. And, and I want to say that my family's great people. I mean, they're great people. They're doing big things in their own lives and their kids are great kids and they're growing. But there's just some some things that I need to talk about. Maybe they don't need to in their lives. Maybe that's okay. Just taking it to the grave. Maybe it's okay. Maybe it's not affecting them spiritually. Maybe it's not affecting them, but if it's, if it is talk about, it. if it's not, then, then just do you. But for me, it wasn't okay. Just ignore it. So oh, thank man. you. This was, uh, yeah. And thank you for being uh, cautious and asking the right questions. And cause it, it is, it is a personal, I mean, it's personal. We don't, I haven't talked about this in a long, long, long time. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Can we backtrack just a little bit and talk some about your addiction? Did anybody ever bust you with this problem? No, no. That's why I was so good at narcotics. That's why I was so good at working undercover because I had a cover story all the time. I was so good at lying and being maniacal. I, I could talk my way out of anything. And, and my mom kind of created this. I mean, I, my, my brothers and my family hates when I talk about this, but it was true. My, we learned how to lie as little kids. Don't tell dad this or hide this. Or if dad asks you this question, tell him this. And so like I learned 
learned to cover and have a cover story for everything. So much so when that when I got in narcotics, I had a cover story for everything. Hey, why aren't you using? Oh, I got my 24 hour chip. I didn't even know what AA was. And I'm breaking out these chips because a guy told me, hey, this is a great segue into not having to use drugs or alcohol at work. When did you become interested in becoming a cop? When I was a little kid, I was thumbing through my dad's closet. And in the back, there was, you know how you put bags over suits? And I'm like, what is this thing? And I opened it up and it was a police uniform. And I'm talking old school uniform with the hat and the badge and the, I mean, it was dope. I pulled it out and I was like, what is this? And I, I felt like my dad had this like alter ego, like, who is this? And I was like, dad, what is this? And he goes, oh yeah, before I was a coach, before I was a teacher, I was a cop. And I'm like, what? And so I would sneak, I know I didn't even, nobody knew this. And I snuck in and I would don this uniform, right? I'd put it on. It was huge, but I'm like, and I would look at myself in the mirror. I'm like, this is what I want to be. I want to be a cop. And so at five, six, seven years old, I wanted to be a police officer. That was it. That's the only thing I ever wanted to be. Did you ever talk to your dad about being a cop? It was very minimal. Like he would, he would mention it, but he wouldn't tell stories. He wouldn't share a lot. He was very, very hush about it. He didn't get fired because the guy that actually hired me was his good buddy in the department. He was the chief at the time. So I'm sure he helped push my resume through or whatever. But yeah, my dad just resigned and wanted to, wanted to coach football and, and be a coach the rest of his life. Interesting. But right. it definitely planted something in you seeing that uniform. Oh, I totally wanted to wear it. And then when I got the uniform off, all I wanted to do was get it off so I could work undercover. I don't know. Because I felt really good in it. It made me feel like a superhero. I wasn't that little kid who was committing all these sins, who were doing all these things wrong. It made me feel larger than life. What was your relationship with God? At that time, I, I thought I had a good relationship with him. Does that make sense? Like I went to church. I prayed as a family. We would all pray. Every morning we would pray. We would read. I thought I had a relationship with God, but I didn't know what I really know now. As a youngster, I think I, I think I had a good relate. I was scared to talk to him. I, I always feel because, you know, in church, they're always like, he knows everything you're doing. And I'm like, oh my heck, here we go. He sees what I'm doing. He sees, yeah, I'm like, oh, this is real good. And so, you know, that played into it. That was embarrassing. Like, how do you go to God on Sunday and tell him, hey, I'm sorry for what I did 15 times this week? I just feel like if that can happen with magazines, like imagine what our kids have access to now. Okay. So we carry, in my opinion, from working with thousands of addicts. That's, I just want to preface that I'm not just a one-time addict. I have 12 years of sobriety. I was an active opioid user for 10 years, but my pornography use started at eight and ended at 42. Understand that that's, that's a lifetime. I'm 49, almost 50 years old. That's a lifetime. And the first time I saw it, I was hooked. So we talk about predisposition, right? Like some people just have that addictive personality. I truthfully, truthfully, honestly believe that. Now, it doesn't have to be just a negative thing. Think about guys who are marathon runners or think about guys who are these gymnasts, okay? They are addicted to their craft. And there's there's a dopamine dump. There's a, there's a rush they get when they compete. So I don't want people to get a twist of that. It's just a negative thing. But for me in addiction, I had the same thing the first time I tried an opioid. I was like hooked. 
you ready for it? I was in a foot pursuit. A dude was carrying two 12 packs and I get there. He was an African-American guy. And all I'm thinking is, dude, if he runs, I'm not catching him. That's what I'm thinking. Like, it was really funny because I'm like, this, there's no way he's way better shaped than I am. He's way faster than me, but I'm at least get the beer back to, you know, I pulled over. He's walking. He's I'm like, hey, man, did you just steal that from Circle Queen? He was, yeah. I was like, hey, come over here. And he's like, nope. He drops the beer and takes off. So I'm like, right there, I have the beer. I should just put it in my car and driven it back to Circle K, right? But I'm like, nope, foot pursuit. I'm chasing. I left the beer there. <laughs> and I'm taking off running. And this dude hops this fence, no lies. And I jump the fence. And when I land, my left leg goes into a hole. And I go to take a step, blow my knee out. And all I remember is my buddy, Lance Hevlin, Officer Hevlin. I hear him. Hey, I got you, Bevel. He's running. He goes to jump over the fence. It's a wooden fence. He hits it and the fence collapses and lands on top of me. He falls backward and breaks his back. I'm under the fence on one side. He's on the other side. I have a blown out knee. He's got a broken back. So tell were that you story. right just, in your instincts that that guy oh, was getting away? He or was what? getting away. I should have just like everything says don't chase this guy because he's gone. And I'm like, you're an idiot. Even even when I was getting back to my car. Car. I'm like, you were such an idiot. Why did you even chase him? You had the beer. Just take it back to the store. You're done. But you know, that was like one of my, that was an early career one year in. And so I went to the doctor and he prescribed me opioids. And I remember telling my wife, Hey, I'm allergic to this stuff. Like I can't take it anymore because I loved it. And it was the same feeling I had that chemical hook from pornography. And I'm like, I could be in trouble. So I just didn't re-up. And then fast forward a few years when I got injured again, I already knew it was coming. Whoa. I want to know about relapses because 12 years is a long time, but I'm sure there's been situations where you thought maybe you could just experiment. I mean, did you? Not one time. If you follow me at all, and if you watch like my stuff, I am a firm believer that relapse is not optional. And I know that a lot of people in the recovery space absolutely hate that idea. They don't believe that that's reality because you do hear so many people relapse, if that makes sense. In my opinion, I don't think it's a weakness. I don't think it's a lack of hope or a lack of faith or a lack of trying. I think it's a lack of preparation in my mind. When I detoxed, I had a severe detox. It was the worst experience of my life. I honestly told God, okay, God, at the seventh day, take my life. So what happened here? Let me just give you really quick my rock bottom. I wake up in the morning. My pills are always in the same place. I hit the cabinet really quick. I take an opioid, take a drink of water, shut the door. And now I, I never had to chase opioids because I'm a cop. I'm injured. They, they would give me so much medication. I mean, you're tired now, but the city still covers it. So I could get whatever I wanted. And I was doctor shopping. So they would like one doctor, I'd go like, hey, I need more. The other doctor, hey, that was making me sick. Can you make it less? But I shut the cabinet this day and it gives me a glimpse into my room. And I'm looking in my room and it's the most disastrous room I've ever seen. And all I can think about is, Brock, you're living in a crack house. What are you doing? And it opened my eyes. I was like, and what was interesting is that was God's way of telling me that's, that was the only way that was going to hit me in the face, if that makes sense. Like that awareness of what a crack house looks like, because most people don't even know what a crack house looks like. It was a disaster with polar pops everywhere, wrappers everywhere. My beds wasn't made. It just, it was, it was disgusting. And I remember a type personality. I'm like, this is bull crap. 
I flung open the cabinet, grabbed every single bottle, opened them up and dumped them. Okay. Now that was dumb. Okay. <laughs> I want to put that out there. Like that's not the way people, that's not the way to recover. I promise you that is, that is silly, but I was angry with myself and who I'd become. I was way more mentally tough. I thought, so I dumped it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, you just dumped all your opioids, bro. Because now I'm like, okay, now what? And really that's where I'm like, okay, you know what? You've been talking about this a long time about how tough you are and how you can just stop using opioids, put your money where your mouth is, let's go. It wasn't really bad till about eight, 10 hours into it. And all of a sudden my body starts aching. I still feel like I'm getting the flu. I start those cold shivers. My body starts hurting. My bones start hurting. And I'm like, whew, I'm a day into this, right? By day three, I'm laying in the bathroom. I'm pooping myself. I'm urinating myself. Um, I mean, it was bad. I was throwing up so bad that I felt like I was going to, you know, when you're heaving, right? Dry heaving and nothing's coming out. That was continuous. And I'm like, okay, is my backbone going to, like, am I going to throw out my bones? That's how violent it was. And I'm like, and this is why people don't want to get off heroin. They don't want to get off opioids because the pain people that have been through are like, oh, dude, I've been there. I know what he's saying is true. The green vial and the crap that was coming out of my body and brittle. I felt like my teeth were going to fall out of my mouth. Day three, I'm like, OK, God, just you win. Let me up. And I remember him talking to me saying, Brock, you haven't even begun because if I let you up, you'll go use. And I remember even in the back of my mind, I'm like, I just need one pill. So this pain will go away. Like I was starting to panic. Cause I was hurting. I'm like, if I could just take one pill, it'll make me feel better. And that was God, him saying, Nope. And people are like, Oh, you didn't hear God's voice. You were, you were delusional. And you know what? Maybe I was, but I guarantee you that was God speaking to me because it was the only voice I've ever heard like that. Day seven, I'm laying in the bathroom and I'm like ready to die. And I'm, I'm going to come back to this one part, but I realized that when we talk about surrendering in recovery, that was my surrender point. I'm like, God, I cannot do this anymore. Like, I can't go more minutes. I can't go another hour because I feel like I'm going to die. So you can take my life or you can give me the power to get out of this bathroom and make a difference in people's lives. That's where I'm at. And I swear to you at that moment in time, like I felt this rush of energy come through my body. I stood up and I walked out of the bathroom. What I did realize in that, that those moments was nobody's coming to save me. My team, there's no team. There's nobody because I had alienated everybody, especially in addiction. My parents didn't know what was going on. My family didn't know. I was divorced. My kids were in another town and I'm alone. I don't want to call anybody. Hey, guess what? I'm naked, laying on the floor. I can't get up. I'm detoxing. Nobody knew. So I'm like, you know, we talk about this connections, the cure, about being connected to people, to people. And I disconnected myself with everybody. And that was a scary disposition being in this addiction. I'm like, man, I will never, I can never do that again. Like if I'm going to heal, if I'm going to heal, if I'm not going to relapse, because I had made, I had made a commitment to God. Like, listen, God, if you get me up out of this space, I'll never go back. And so I think everybody's journey is different. I had a commitment with God. The person down the street may not have that same experience, but there's going to come a time in your life where relapse is not optional. People are in recovery all the time saying, yeah, I've, I've been sober and, and I relapse. Well, I mean, relapse shouldn't be an option. Like, why are you in your life making relapse optional? Like for me, I don't understand it. I don't coach to a relapse. I feel like that's a failure. And I, I know people are like, oh, I don't like that word. I can't believe you'd use that. But, but it's true. Here's the deal. The price of a mission in recovery almost took our lives. 
Like we have that in common. And today people, it's even skyrocketed with fentanyl out there. The chance of you relapsing and dying is almost more than relapsing and getting sober. Let's talk that it's not optional. You got to live your life with some purpose and that we're not going back. So that's what I coach. That's what I teach the guys who are come my program. That's the first time I tell them. If you don't believe in this philosophy, I'm okay with that. There's other people out there that can coach you and get you sober. If that's the, the modality you want, I just don't believe in it. How I mean, did you go from seven days and having this come to God moment to getting back to being able to coach others and move on with your life? It took me some time. It took me some time. Yeah, I'm missing some steps there. Yeah, you're missing some steps. It took me about six years. So I I, okay, that's a good chunk of time. A few years later, I I started working as assistant principal in a in a junior high school. And my principal one morning looks at me, says, Why are you here? I mean, you're great at what you do, but this isn't your passion. What are you doing? I hear about your recovery and I'm gonna give you an invitation. My daughter runs a program in Prescott. I want you to go visit her for the day, see what you think. Think about coming back here in, in our little town and starting a rehab. Okay, whatever. So we made a trip to Prescott and we we spent some time with her. And on the way home, we figured out the name of the business, how we're going to start it. And, and within four or five months, we started a recovery program in Northern Arizona. And I ran it for six years and loved it. It's, it's still up there. I'm not a part of it anymore, but I want to give back to he who gave me everything. And so that's why I do what I do today. Yeah. Like why didn't you continue that line of work? Why did you switch gears? I was, I got a divorce. So I sold the company. I moved up North. I did it to save my marriage. I moved closer to where my wife, she felt comfortable being and it didn't turn out the way I'd hoped. You want to talk anything about the divorce? A lot of it was due to my addiction. I was a turd. The decisions that I made in my active addiction. What I want people to understand is as an officer, like we live a certain life. We feel we are certain individuals, like we're important and we have a team and we care for each other. And then when I retired and they said, you're not fit for duty, those phone calls stopped. I didn't have a team anymore. I went home. And so I was living this life of like nitro circus, buying, selling dope and doing all this fun police work. And the next day I'm at home changing my di- my kids' diapers. And, and I always have to preface this. It's not a bad thing. That just wasn't what I was doing. I wasn't used to that. Well, it was my wife. She was doing a great job at it. I was working. I was making the money. I was, you know, I wasn't used to that lifestyle. And so I did things to create chaos in my mind to make everything okay. So I went outside of my marriage and I was cheating on my wife and I was doing things that were not who I was as an individual. The more opioids I took, the better I felt about myself. And you told me that you shared that with your wife, like the same night that it happened. When I had my affair, I did. I drove home and told her that I had an affair on her. Yeah. I mean, I just needed to know. But you were good at covering things up. Why would you tell her? You know what? Looking back at it now, I think it was my out. To be honest, our marriage was rocky. It was rough. And I'm not a quitter. I don't just quit things, even though I've been divorced twice and, you know, remarried three, I'm third marriage. This one's going to stick. But uh, I just felt like I didn't, I had five kids with her. There was 13 years vested in this marriage. And I'm like, man, I didn't want my kids to think I just quit. You know, like, I, Dad, why did you get divorced, Dad? I wanted them. I, I know it sounds like really mental, but I wanted to have a reason. It was something dumb I did. I wanted out. I think that's the only thing I can put it to. 
I, I'm interested in like what you thought relationships were when you met her and what you think relationships are now. Oh man, I was such a terrible husband. I was, I was terrible. I was so selfish. I think I could probably, I mean, you're, you have a, an audience that could probably understand this, but I mean, in the bedroom, I was so selfish. You know, I think about it. It was all about me. And because I'd seen so much pornography, that was what I saw sex as. And so it took me a long time to evolve and to realize that a relationship's two person. I, I was selfish. I mean, would I, do I wish I could go back and change? Yeah. You know, I wish I could be a better husband and father. And But I'm glad I had these experiences. I'm glad I went through it because had I not, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I wouldn't have the mindset that I have today. I wouldn't be able to share the, the wisdom, hope, and knowledge that I have today. Wow. What's the dream now? Man, my dream is, I mean, I want to help every single person out there overcome addiction. I know it sounds nutty, but addiction has such a grasp. Well, it has such a grasp on our country, but I'm individually, it had such a grasp on me. It changed who I was. It turned me from like this really good person into just darkness. And I had no light and I really couldn't see out of the bag. You get to a point where you can't see hope. I mean, you lose everything, everything. I lost my kids. I thought about committing suicide. I mean, I'm not that guy. I'm not a quitter. You know, I'm, I'm gritty. It takes your soul. And if I can just give hope, if I can just give peace to people's home, you know, if I can show you how to how to improve, that's that's really my goal. My wife thinks I'm crazy. Even when I podcast with you, you know what I mean? Like, I want everybody to hear you. I want everybody to hear what we have. You know what I mean? Because maybe something that you offer them will change their course. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, I really, truly believe that, that the way that we're telling this right now is probably different than you've told it to other people. So somebody needs to hear it exactly in this way. I hope so. Yeah, that's that's my hope, right? Yeah. Are you addicted now to helping people with addiction? Totally. I totally am. You have cross addictions. You don't just, I mean, think about it from eight to 42, I had an addiction. There was a lot of time dedicated and devoted to that. Think about I the amount of hours. Imagine like, yeah, it, what uh, that looked like across that span. And think about this. It was always alone and secretive. Check it out. I mean, think about that. You don't let somebody watch you look at pornography or masturbate. That's weird, right? And so it's alone time. So now you have to take and feel that with something better. That's a lot of time to waste. I'm catching up. Yeah. What have you filled that with? I fill it with coaching. I feel with podcasting, I have two different podcasts. I have my own, and then I have one with Max Hall, who's an ex-NFL football player and a therapist from Utah, Blue Robinson. So I have that podcast with them, and then I have my own podcast. So I do spend a lot of time with that. I do a ton of research. I'm, I'm always trying to up my game. I want to be better. Love public speaking. Right now, I'm working with the organization called Connection is the Cure. It's out of Boise, Idaho, and we're bringing it to Arizona. We're, we're doing a, a mental health concert here in Arizona. So I think it's freaking crazy, but we're just going to keep doing it. Who do you want to connect with? I love working with law enforcement, first responders, veterans. Those are my dudes. They, they right. understand how to battle. Nice. And recovery is a battle. Think about it. I mean, you're in a constant fight. 
I can't yeah. imagine I haven't experienced that, but I have an addictive personality. So I with you that like I shouldn't even try it once or I'd probably become addicted. Do you drink coffee? I'm completely addicted to that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor tomorrow morning when you wake up, no coffee ever again in your life. I don't allow myself coffee until I run. Okay. But I'm listen, no, I'm, I'm saying run, walk, eat. I don't care. No coffee the rest of your life. That's what we're asking these dudes to do. Like give up a behavior you've done all your life that feels excellent, that makes your body better. You know what I mean? Like, come on. Yeah, it's hard. And like, and now you're battling that and triggers and smells and everything you do is based around that. Even if it's fictitious, it makes you think about it. Do you think it's a forever battle? Forever battle. I will forever battle it, but I will forever beat it. Yeah, the coffee example is really good. Yes, but, but you know, think about it though. Even sugar, think about quitting sugar the rest of your life. And that's what we're asking an addict to do, like give up something we love. It's not beneficial to us, but think about pornography. I mean, who's it hurting? I mean, I honestly give it to you even for being willing to talk about it. Because like you said, you were secretive about it for all of those years and felt bad about it. Why did you decide to be so honest? I feel like I'm as sick as my secrets. And I was pacifying this monster under my bed. I knew it was coming out. Someone was going to find out, but I I just was feeding it enough food to where I could keep it hidden. But for me, I was ready to explode. I'm like, I'm never going to be righteous. I'm never going to feel wholesome. I'm never going to have a normal relationship. I mean, how do you have a normal relationship with a woman when you're hiding masturbation, when you're hiding pornography? That's hard. Most men are struggling with it. There's an addiction cycle that you can start identifying and and you can plug it in and see it work and be like, oh, okay, I understand. So it's awareness, knowledge, and choice. That's the three biggest words in addiction. I have to be aware of my addiction to be knowledgeable how it works. I have to make a choice not to do it. And if I can do that, if I can identify, the problem is we get too deep into, okay, here you go. Ready? Think about this. You're in a relationship with the man. You stimulate him enough to have an erection. Is he backing out? At that point, you'd be like, okay, sorry, we've gone too far. We're done. No, you've already in, in the same thing with pornography. And that can happen fast. As soon as there's a physical change to your body, an erection, you start tasting all that, you're dead. In recovery, it's about identifying those things. And so it's slowing down your process and making good decisions before it gets to that point. What advice would you give to your daughter? Vet your husband. Like, honestly, like have some have some real conversations with him. It's not a death sentence, but if, if a young man's struggling, I mean, because I have five daughters. Oh, I actually have seven daughters. I have four of my own and two. So I have seven kids, one son. I just want them to make a good choice. Like I want them to know their husbands well enough. If you have, if you have a pornography problem, talk about it. Like don't make it a secret. That was my worst mistake thinking I could hide it from everybody because the more I hit it, the more unhealthy I got. So how do you find out? How do you really vet someone? Do you talk to them? You talk to them. That for me is what I would do. I wouldn't marry them after three months. I would get to know them. I would have an open relationship. Like if he can't show you his phone right now, something's going on. Because as addicts, that's what we do. We are so good at hiding it. Right. And so just but with me, my do it like in secret mode or whatever. Sure. I mean, you can, but you're going to slip up. I mean, that's where you, I hope my daughters have healthy relationships and healthy boundaries. If you're putting a code on, if you're changing your code every time I know your code, something's going on. Like, I'm just not going to trust you. 
my wife knows my my phone. My, she can pick my phone up at any time and look through my phone. And, and do you I, want her having to yes, be your keeper? Yes. I want her to keep me safe. Yeah, why not? It's just one more thing that helps me stay safe. A, a psychologist told me this one time. If you think your son or daughter has a problem today, you're two years too late. You're, you're too late. If you're like, oh, maybe they're look, dude, they are. Our kids are so much smarter than us. I mean, they know how to hide things. They know how to use codes. We don't have any clue. Snapchat, you can't. There's it, Everything's erased after a, you look at it. D- dope deals are going on Snapchat. The girls at, at eight years old are sending nudes. It's a nut, nutty world. What we do is our kids turn their phones in at night. Put your phone in. When we have dinner, you're putting your phone in. There's a charging station in our house where you guys are going to charge at. This is what you're going to do. We have your passwords. We're going to look at your phone. We're going to have an open communication. We pay you for your phone. We get to see your phone. And we just, at any time we can take their phones and a check-in can be at any time we feel like it. That's good advice. Yeah, there's, there's, okay. So, so let me give you a couple things. First of all, why is your kid taking their phone into their room? And shutting their door. If you have to go use the phone in your room, use your computer, right? Leave your phone on here. Just put it on the on, on the table. Whatever. We won't go through it. You know, just, just leave it here. At dinner, put your phone up. We're not going to be looking through our phones at dinner. At night. So one of the biggest problems is our phones just ding and ding and ding and ding. And our kids never sleep. So whatever time you make it in your house, 9, 10, I don't, I don't know. Your phone goes in our room and it's charged. Your phone's on silent. It's charging all night. You don't need it. You don't. I mean, social media will be there tomorrow. We limit our social media with our kids. Our kids don't have Facebook. Our kids don't have Instagram. And and only because they're connected enough at school. They know what's going on. At 14, they don't need all that crap. They're going to get it soon enough. A lot of parents are like, well, they're going to be so far behind. No, they're not. They're still active. They're still doing everything. They're still going to the dances. They're still doing all their fun things with their friends. They're connected. Trust me. I can't tell you, Rena, how many people I've interviewed on my podcast that said that have lost their child, death to fentanyl. I just just did one last week, and the lady's like, my daughter was 17 years old, straight A student. You know, we talk about stuff. We we've had these conversations. She thought she was taking a an opioid and took fentanyl and died. And so it's like, who's protecting our kids, right? We like as a parent, that's our obligation. We have to do that. That absolutely terrifies me as I have a kid getting ready to enter high school. Anything you want to ask my dad? How do we get past our past? I know for, especially in addiction and and for me, that I think was the hardest and still is the hardest thing that I ever have to go through. How do I get past that and heal to where I can have a wonderful, well-rounded, creative life? That's a beautiful question. I love that. I can't wait to hear his answer. Okay, go ahead and promote away. I know you briefly talked about your two podcasts that you're doing. Let people know how they can find them and connect with you. Yeah, the first one is is the one that I'm on that I have guests on. It's called Chase the Vase, where you were on. It's coming out next week. I'm super pumped about it. It turned out really well. So well done. And then I have one that I do once a week with the NFL guys, and it's called The Agents of Recovery. And so we, there are three guys, and and the reason we started it is so we could talk like men, right? We could help men. We could have, like, there's a a space for the women. You guys are way better at it than we are. Like, dudes won't talk about it. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times they're like, I'm not going to talk about it. It's like, dude, you're killing your marriage. You're killing your home life. Talk about it. I have a challenge that I do. It's called the Chase the Vase Challenge. It's a 60-day challenge where I help people get through, start to get them through into the process of, of finding real long-term recovery. 
Amazing yeah. work. Well, I have loved reconnecting with you and having you You're on. Awesome. You are an amazing guest. Thank Keep you. shining. And I hope that your podcast just continues to grow and hits millions of people because you are doing amazing work. Oh, you're awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. An amazing interview with Brock. You've now told me that it was uh, run with really two interviews in one. Plus, there's so much subject matter to cover. Just an amazing story or story of life. To start with his question, how do you break patterns or your past? What you're supposed to do is learn from your past, take all the experiences that you have, and plot out your future. And if you can foresee a future, that's the way to break the past. If you can't see a future, if you can't see how to better yourself and build your experiences towards a better outcome. You get caught in that cycle of rinse and repeat, and you don't get anywhere. And unfortunately, you don't make any headway. In your case, that is the way you've been able to break the cycle by taking all of these adversities and you've overcome them and have become a better man. To share that wisdom with others is your calling. Isn't it something that you put it in a really in a positive light that being addicted to good things is all right. Being addicted to bad things or bad choices is what we have to actually break. Make sure that we make good choices and continue to make them over and over and over again is also a way to overcome the wonderful gift of freedom of choice of evil and good or bad and good is to experience both and choose good and to choose a future and to choose being the good guy. Yeah, it was interesting how he chose to go from addicted to being a cop to addicted to helping people fight addiction. Right. And like I said, I, I'm, I might not have understood it fully, but to me, it sounds like his sister a lot of the mental problems that were caused is where she was abused, where she had really a tough time in growing up herself. Unfortunately, being around small children where she was trying to help people with their children, uh, she wasn't really able to handle it because of, and she had been in, unfortunately, continued abusive relationships. And when you're uh, being abused, sometimes you take that type of behavior that's done to you and you do it to others. Small children, one that might've been in the hospital, just gets over a sickness and is not really fully better. And they're screaming and they're crying. She wasn't able to really handle that. That's part of what an abuser does. By doing that to her, she then did it to possibly to the baby. And the baby obviously wasn't able to take that shaking and or that bonking of, of somebody's head. Remember, we had a fellow that worked in the shop that even went on the Jerry Springer show where he, he went to jail for many years, where he was just babysitting his own child and slammed it up against the wall because he couldn't get the child to stop crying and, and killed his own child. How can that possibly happen? And yet, this is, it's not an unusual story. There are a lot of parents that are not able to cope or handle a crying child where they've actually suffocated or strangled their own child. Some of it could be related that they were abused as a child themselves. So to be understanding about that is by communicating and talking it out and understanding what the signs are. And that's what Brock brings up about a lot of his experiences is let's find the cause and effect of what we're doing. And by talking it out and communicating it and brainstorming it with many people, we have a chance to cure some of the ills of the world and break that pattern so that we can all have a chance for a better future. Let's hope so. How did you like though, that he like really wanted to talk about his grief? That's also, I think a very key 
thing in here is that communicating all of these experiences that he's had really is therapeutic. Our show, Better Call Daddy Show, is where we're all trying to figure out to take where we've come from and where he also brings up where he wants to break the cycle and be able to have a continuum for the next generation where all of the craziness that he experienced, he wants to be able to show that he's been there and done that and let's figure out how to do it better so we don't have these same dramatic issues, that we don't have these crazy wars, that we don't have these power struggles and this lying and cheating going on out there, that all of the crazy evils that are out there, let's figure out a way to catch it before the fire gets out of control where you burn down your whole forest. Let's figure out how we can preserve our world and build on humanity where we can say that we can achieve better wisdom, better opportunities for ourselves and growth and opportunities, and where we can have a world that can evolve just like we want our technology and some of the wonderful developments that we do with our knowledge. But we've got to have our social lives be able to mature just like we want our technical lives to improve. It's got to go hand in hand. Otherwise, we might as well just stay as cavemen. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 